listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Good morning, Grace DC. I'm Erwin, one of the pastors in our network. It's really a joy for me to be before you this morning, sharing God's word, a message out of the passage that was just read into your hearing from Isaiah chapter 9. I want to speak to you on this subject this morning, waiting for the king. And now I bet that most of us at some point in our lives have found ourselves uh, afraid of the dark. Well, my wife and I, when our children were were young, we'd place a night light in their room so that when the lights were turned off, it wasn't a pitch black. Kids, you may be experiencing that even now, having a night light in your room so that you can fall asleep at night um, in not complete darkness. Well, I want to tell you a little bit of story uh, story about darkness as it relates to me and my experience as an adult. Uh, my wife, uh, her mom is from Springfield, Ohio, and I recall the first time that that Kim and I traveled out there together as a young married couple. We were still living in New York City at the time. And one thing's for sure, that when you live in New York City, it's never really dark. There are street lamps that line every street because New York is a city literally that never sleeps. There's always light from headlamps and the lights on top of police cars and, and fire trucks. So even at night, there's plenty of light coming through your window. Well, on our first visit uh, to Springfield, Ohio, as husband and wife, we stayed at Kim's grandfather's house. And when we turned off the lights to go to bed, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see Kim's face. I couldn't see anything in the room. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. But not only was I unable to see anything, there were all of these noises, <laughs> crickets and other kinds of noise-making nighttime bugs. <laughs> I wasn't quite shaking in my boots, but I would have much rather had the noise of sirens and honking horns with light than the serenity of the country with darkness. Now, you may be one of those folks who likes being out in the country where the only light at night comes from the moon and the stars, you know, you you folks who like pitching tents and camping out and stuff like that. And my point here is not to, to talk about you and how strange I might think you are. I simply want to bring out the fact that the dichotomy between light and darkness is a reality of life, both physically and spiritually. And as much as many of us might be comfortable in the nighttime darkness of the country life compared to the city, none of us actually wants to live in that darkness 24-7, all day and all night. And so it should be no surprise to us that when we turn to the Bible, what we find is that it's enveloped by the image of light, both literally and figuratively. In the first chapter of the Bible, when darkness was over the face of the deep, God's first words in the creation account are, let there be light. 
And in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, God obliterates all traces of darkness when it says there, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. One of the things that's true of this Advent season is the reminder that God has broken in on us with his light and that the radiant glory of his light will one day shine so brightly that there will be no darkness anymore ever again. And in our text this morning, the people of Israel are in distress. Their situation is dark and dire. They are actually experiencing the weight of God's divine justice. They had loved darkness as evidenced by their their idolatry and by their moral bankruptcy. They were people who had embraced injustice in their culture. They've oppressed and abused the poor. They are an unfaithful city. This is why they are in darkness. Isaiah says in chapter 8, verses 11 to 15, that he heard from the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to Isaiah. Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And then Isaiah describes at the end of chapter 8, right before our passage, he describes the darkness of the people's condition in verse 22 of chapter 8 when he says that they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They are in a desperate situation. Distress and darkness, the place where no one wants to live, the condition in which no one wants to live is defining their reality. And then in our passage, the word of reversal comes from the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 9, the Lord says, Though Isaiah, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Those who dwell 
in a land of deep darkness. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This deep darkness is the same word that David uses in Psalm 23 when he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. This death shadow, this deep darkness, it is an unimaginable and impenetrable gloom. And into this impenetrable gloom, light shines. And the light is not coming by their efforts. No, the last word of our passage in verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This, sisters and brothers, is where our hope lies. If light is going to shine in the darkness, if light is going to shine in this dark world, God has to do it. As one commentator on this passage put it, all the activity is on God's side. And listen, right? The light in this passage is not described simply as radiance or splendor or brightness or even glory. Did you notice that the light is a person? The light in this passage is a person. The light is a son who is a king who will take the throne of David as an eternal king. And what is his name? His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. (laughs) I haven't even got to my points yet and I feel like running on. (laughs) No, the light is the king. He is the king. And so I want to talk about two things briefly in this passage this morning. Just two things. One, the king's prestige. And two, the king's people. The king's prestige and the king's people. A number of years ago, early on in Barack Obama's presidency, the comedian and actor Jamie Foxx hosted the Soul Train Music Awards and trying to be funny and get a laugh at the, as the crowd was responding. He, he said this, he said, it's like church in here, man. It's, it's like church over here. First of all, he said, giving honor to God and our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama, Barack Obama. And afterward, Jamie Foxx caught a lot of heat for saying that. Even though he was joking, the joke only had any punch because so many people were acting like President Obama was the Lord and Savior. Millions of people in the country had him as the focal point of our national hopes and trust. Well, four years ago, that script was flipped. In 2016, a whole other contingent of folk had Donald Trump as the focal point of our national hopes and trust. Millions were saying he's going to make America great again. Well, guess what? 
It's 2020. Here we are in 2020 and millions of Americans are rejoicing while millions of other Americans are enraged. In fact, so terrible is the rage that it even exploded into deplorable violence in our own city just last weekend. Here's my point. It does not matter where we live or in what nation our citizenship resides. We know that there's no such thing as a people without a ruler. There is no life in this world that is ruler free. We might have differing thoughts or opinions about who we want our leader to be based on what we perceive as the good life. I I just want a leader who makes sure that the government keeps its foot off my neck and its hands out of my pockets. Or I I want the kind of leader who's going to lead America into living up to the ideal of liberty and justice for all. Whatever the case may be, If you and I get the kind of leader that we want, understand his or her leadership is not permanent. It's only temporary and you and I are left waiting. You and I will always be left waiting, uh, rejoicing or frustrated. We'll find ourselves on a roller coaster ride of joy and despair based on who our ruler is. Can I tell you something? That was the exact condition in Isaiah's day. Isaiah's call as a prophet came in chapter 6 of this book. And Isaiah described it this way in verse 1 of that chapter. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah, who's also known in the Bible by the name Azariah, had the most extensive and prosperous reign of any king in Israel since King Solomon. He came to the throne at age 16 and he reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years. His time as king of Judah covered all or part of the reign of six rulers in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Uzziah's reign was a time of great stability for the nation. While there were assassinations and there were political jostling in the northern kingdom, uh, it says in 2 Kings 15 and verse 3 that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Uzziah is gone now, and the impact of that leadership vacuum and void is felt. The deep darkness and the distress is answered by the description of a coming king with the prestige that the people needed. A king whose reign would be permanent, eternal, and unchangeable. Imagine yourself if you can. Transport yourself back in your imagination, in your mind's eye, as if you were living in Isaiah's day, in this place of deep distress, and hearing these words in verse 6, For to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you be surprised? Would you be in disbelief? You would certainly have been longing for another king like like David, but the description of this king is unlike anything you would have heard or expected. His name is Wonderful Counselor. That is, he's a supernatural counselor or a king whose counsel is supernatural. His wisdom is from on high. His strategy is beyond our comparison. When you hear him speak and when you see his work, your response will be to marvel and to be astonished by the wisdom that comes from his mouth. So watch, right? We know who this king is. So we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospels, we hear things like this in the Gospels, and the disciples were amazed at his word. (laughs) Over and over again, the people we find in the Gospel accounts, we're told that people are amazed at Jesus. They marvel because they've never heard or seen anything like him. And listen, this strategy that uh, employed for him to ascend to his eternal throne was beyond their ability to grasp. What do I mean? This is why every time Jesus explained to the disciples that he would be betrayed and crucified and rise on the third day, they responded in absolute bewilderment. That strategy of ruling and reigning and ascending to the eternal throne, it did not compute in their mind. This is why we find in places like Romans 9, we find Paul saying stuff like this. Who are you, O man, to answer to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder. (laughs) Why have you made me like this? Will the pottery say to the potter, why have you made me like this? You and I are not the wonderful counselor. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond? How do you respond when your plans and your strategy for how things ought to work out in your life don't go as they as you plan? Or even more, how do you respond when your thoughts and your plans and your strategy to help bring about what is good and right and just and beautiful for other people doesn't work out? What do you do? Do you submit to the rule of the wonderful counselor, the rule of the divine strategists whose plans never fail but may not be understood by you and I? You see, the wonderful counselor has wisdom like God because he is God. 
His name is Mighty God, and just like the wonderful counselor name is a reference to his divine strategy and wisdom, the designation of his might has a military reference to it. Did you notice the military references in verses 4 and 5 of this passage? He breaks the oppressive yoke that their enemies have placed upon them. He breaks the staff and rod that have been pressing them down. The prophet says, just like it was on the day of Midian. What happened on the day of Midian? This is a reference to the book of Judges chapters 6 and 7. The Midianites had overpowered Israel and had oppressed them. And the Lord called a man named Gideon to be the one through whom he would deliver his people. And look, y'all, none of us would have chosen Gideon as a deliverer. When the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, do you know where Gideon was? It says in Judges 6 and verse 11 that he was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. He was down, he was down in the wine press, press beating out the wheat in secret. But you know, it don't matter where you are, you can't hide from the Lord. Now, that's a sermon for another day, but here's the deal. When the angel of the Lord shows up and appears to him in the wine press, he greets Gideon with these words. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Nobody would have called Gideon a mighty man of valor. Nobody would have said this guy is the one who can lead us in victory uh, in battle over the Midianites. Gideonite in, Gideon, rather, in his, uh, in his response, he ignores the description of him being a mighty man of valor. He responds to the first statement that the, uh, the angel says that the Lord was with him. And Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where's all of the wonderful things that our, that our fathers told us about? How the Lord brought us up from Egypt. Uh, nah, 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 Gideon. It's like the Lord has forsaken us. And then the Lord says to Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and verse 14, the Lord turns to him and says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? Gideon protests. Gideon tests the Lord. And when he's finally convinced to go and lead the army against the Midianites, the Lord says to him, you got too many people. An army of 32,000 gets reduced to 10,000. And the Lord's like, that's still too many. He keeps whittling the army down until it's only 300 people. The Lord delivers the Israelites through Gideon without them having to as much stub their toe on a rock. God whittled down the enemy, the, the army rather, for one reason and one reason only. So that it would be clear who the mighty one was. And now Isaiah looks back on that and says, 
the king you all have been longing for, is the same mighty God who broke the back of the oppressor in the day of Midian. And and when Isaiah says in verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, it is a description of how complete the victory is. The military equipment is burned because they're not needed anymore. The victory over oppression and injustice is secured by the one whose name is Mighty God. This is his prestige. He's the wonderful counselor, Mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This one of whom Isaiah writes is the son of David and yet is David's Lord. He's the one who was to inherit that throne and to reign eternally. He is, as we sing in that hymn, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. He is born a child and yet a king. Let me make this connection for you about this prestige of the king. Isaiah writes this, Listen, Isaiah writes this with some present tense language. He says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them has light shone. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. There were more messed up, jacked up, problematic kings who would come to rule over Israel and Judah after this prophecy. There were more dark days to come for the people. Their longing and their waiting for deliverance was not yet at an end, but the life and presence and promise of this king is so fixed and so sure in Isaiah's vision that he can speak of it as a present reality. Look, they didn't fully grasp the identity of this king. They had to wait centuries for the baby born in Bethlehem of Judea with angels attending his birth. They had to wait until he preached his inaugural sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth when the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. When he unrolled the scroll to the passage he would take for his text, it says in Luke chapter 4 verses 18 to 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolls the scroll back up. He gives it to the attendant and he sits down to preach his message and simply began to say to them, today, 
This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The wait is over. The centuries you've been waiting for the anointed one to show up. It is over your wait for the king to show up who would proclaim liberty to the captives. The one who would set the oppressed free. The one who would break the yoke of oppression. The wait is over. I'm here. Listen. Jesus is the only preacher in history with the goods to preach a message about himself. But wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. Hold on, hold on. Are you sure about this? Not so fast. There's a problem. I still see oppression. What do you mean the wait is over? I still see darkness. It seems like we're still waiting. Let me just be plain. Listen, this is precisely, sisters and brothers, this is precisely why we are called to live by faith. Not live by faith in an abstract idea or faith in the hope of progress. No faith in a person, faith in the one who is described as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Pastor Russ preached on this passage recently, and he helpfully used an illustration from the Netflix Netflix show, The Queen's Gambit. And in good preacher practice, I'm giving him credit for this reference. The first time I use it, next time it's mine and mine alone. Just to let you know, Pastor Russ. But here it is. <laughs> in that show, Queen's Gambit, The Queen's Gambit, you, you regularly see the main character, Beth, lying in her bed at night, looking up at the ceiling, and you see her having this image, uh, this this vision of a chessboard, and, and she's making moves and, and counter moves, and she's playing out all the moves, so much so that sometimes a move that looks like weakness or defeat and loss to an untrained eye is necessary to get to the goal of victory. You see, faith in Jesus is not a shot in the dark. Faith in Jesus is an admission of our limits. It is a willing admission that we don't see the board the way he sees it, that we can't see the board the way he sees it, that if he is indeed the king who is wonderful counselor, we don't have access to the full understanding of his strategy. And it's actually arrogance to believe that we do. If we have been captivated by the king's prestige, then what do we do as the king's people who are still waiting? My father's favorite poem was the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, I, I memorized that poem many, many years ago. And the first stanza of that poem starts like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. And then the third line, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting. <laughs> there it is. 
That's the line that comes to my mind for the king's people. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. We're still waiting for the king to make his final arrival and set all things right. We're still waiting for righteousness and justice to rule and to reign over the earth. How do we wait? How do we wait for the king as his people? I just want to share one thing with you and I'm done. One thing with you and I'm done. Note this from verse 2 of our passage. Again, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Let me emphasize some words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a light. Those, those people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them, on those people, has light shone. Here's the thing. How is it that the light shone on them? These are the rebellious, unjust, idolatrous people who are facing divine justice. It's it's their joy that's increased in verse 3 of the passage. They are the ones rejoicing. There has been a reversal for them. They have been brought into joy. And this is always the posture of those of us who wait. We not only realized that we have been the recipients of an undeserved, lavish love grace, and kindness from God himself, that realization brings us into an experience of joy while we wait for the king. Not a fake it till you make it kind of joy, but a joy that centers us through the trials, the travails, the disappointments, and the depressions of life. As we wait for the king, the king's people have been brought into his joy. They've been brought into his peace. And we become agents of that peace in a broken world as we wait for the king. My favorite hymn of this season, beyond any doubt, is O Holy Night. This was sealed for me when I was just a boy in Brooklyn, New York. My sister sang that year with the All City Choir and their Christmas concert was held in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. And that year they had a guest soloist, a soprano who sang the lead in Oh Holy Night and I'd never heard or experienced sound like I did when she at the end of the song sang Oh Night Divine. The volume of her voice expanded and filled that cathedral. I felt it reverberating in my bones and I was moved to tears and that sealed the deal for me. And I began to pay closer attention to that hymn, in particular the third verse. Truly he taught us to love one another His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, 
for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and his glory evermore proclaim. Let me ask you a question. How can we sing that song? How can Christians sing those words with such confidence? Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppressions shall cease. We can sing it because we know that Christ is the Lord in spite of what it looks like around us. It is because we've been given eyes like Isaiah's eyes so we can speak of what is to come as if it's a present reality. Let me end and close our time this way. James Weldon Johnson is most commonly known as the one who penned uh, the Black National Anthem left every voice and sing in the early 1900s. But almost 25, almost rather 100 years ago in 1925, he and his brother J. Rosamond Johnson, they published a two-volume hymnal titled The Books of American Negro Spirituals. And I love what James Weldon Johnson wrote about this sacred Christian music in the introduction to the hymnal. He makes the point that the spirituals possess the fundamental characteristics of African music. And the question he asks is, how then did we get the spirituals, this Christian music? He writes this. He says, at the psychic moment, he calls it, there was at hand the precise religion for the condition in which he found himself thrust. The result was a body of songs voicing all the cardinal virtues of Christianity, patience, forbearance, love, faith, and hope. Indeed, he asks, without Christianity, would he, be, would he have been able to survive slavery in the way in which he did? What he is describing is what happens when people come under the rule and reign of the king, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. An old pastor of mine in my childhood church in Brooklyn, New York, he used to, on a regular basis, most Sundays throughout the year, no matter what season of the year it was, he would greet the congregation at some point in the service with these words, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Say Merry Christmas in the middle of the summer. But he wanted to remind us every week that the King has come. The King has come. You're different. Life is different because the King has come and he sees and knows all things. And this enables us to wait for him to make all the wrongs right, wait for the reality of peace to ha ha having no end to reach its fullness 
when he comes again. This is how we wait, family. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our king, that you have bought us for yourself and brought us into your joy. We pray that this season we would know that joy even more intimately, that we would be people who can press and work for peace even as we wait for it to reach its fullness. Do this for your glory and for our good. Amen, amen, and amen.